0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, does sailing on a sea of fortune get pennies stuck in your keel? Steampunk pirates in the sky and squiggly jiggly smart flesh in your brain. Plus part 45 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with the author of a new novel set in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire universe. For those two or three of our audience just returning from, well, long sojourns in dinosaur times, for instance, the Ring of Fire books are a science fictional alternate history about a West Virginia town that gets thrown back to the year 1632 in what will become Germany. It's quite a cultural stew, as you can imagine. Now, Ivor P. Cooper, the author of 1636 Seas of Fortune, takes us on a journey across the vast oceans where we find out the effect of those refugees from the future on Japan and western North America. Bane associate editor Laura Haywood Corey will be your captain for this adventure. We have this as well as another cool tune from songwriter Filker and Bane slush editor Gray Reinhardt. And part 45 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Hey, we're in the sweet part of this novel now, folks. All this and more, but first, here's the news. I want to mention that we have a trifecta of great choices for reading on the main Bain.com website this month. These include a new short story from Sharon Lee. It's called The Gift of Music. This one is set in the world of her Archer's Beach contemporary fantasy novels. It's a great story, and I know Sharon is particularly fond of it, so you should check that out. What are these Archer's Beach books again, Laura?
2: Well, the first one is Carousel Tides, and the second one, Carousel Sun, will be out at booksellers everywhere on that magical publishing date of the first Tuesday of next month, February 4th. And I also happen to know that the third one in the series, Carousel Seas, is slated for next fall. It's an excellent series from Sharon, who is, of course, the co-creator of the Leaden Universe science fiction series with her husband Steve Miller.
1: This is her. Uh, this is her standalone contemporary fantasy series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's really fun, and it's a, it's a little bit of a break from Leaden, but it's the same, same great writing voice. Also on the Bain website is a science piece. From a neurological research scientist Dr. Ted Roberts. The title of this one says it all: From Smart Flesh to Custom Organs, the Growing Science of Tissue Engineering. It's fascinating to look at what they're calling smart flesh. Doesn't that sound appetizing, Laura? It does. Yeah, it's the. Actually, what it is is the wrapping of electronics into the body and even the brain. And the creation of human organs that might someday be used for uh, desperately needed transplants, among other things.
2: You could grow your own heart.
1: Indeed. Or use it to convince the evil queen that you've killed the royal progeny.
2: Yep, exactly.
1: And She doesn't have to worry.
2: And also, we're continuing our multi-part series from Carrera series author Tom Crapman, Training for War. Part 4 is now available. And Tom's a retired Army lieutenant colonel, so he knows whereof he speaks. And the article draws some broad principles that are also applicable to any metaphorical war you might need to train for.
1: Any metaphorical war, like life?
2: Sometimes like life.
1: Okay, all three of these great pieces are totally free and make excellent uh, sit-down, relax, take-a-break reading. And you can find them at Bain.com, so check them out.
2: So with us on the podcast today, we have Ivor Cooper. Ivor's been an active contributor to Eric Flint's Ring of Fire universe with 22 short stories and 40 articles published so far in the online Grantville Gazette and another short story in the hardcover anthology Ring of Fire 2. This month sees the release of his first solo novel from Bane, 1636, Sea of Fortune, which is a braided tale told in two parts in two directions, one set of stories facing east, the other facing west. In Stretching Out, a group of pioneers heads for the coast of South America to start a new colony. And in the Rising Sun section, Japan's shogun is exposed to uptime technology and has to decide how to move his country forward. Now, Ivor is an intellectual property law attorney with Rowdy and Neemark in Washington, D.C., He's received legal writing awards from the American Patent Law Association, the U.S. Trademark Association, and the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And he's the sole author of Biotechnology and the Law, now in its 20-something edition. In his spare time, in addition to all this writing, he teaches swing and folk dancing and participates in local photo club competitions. Welcome, Ivor. Well,
3: thank you. I'm here.
2: Good. All right. We're going to first give a really quick overview of the 1632 series, The Ring of Fire, for our podcast listeners who may not be familiar with it. The premise is that a small town in West Virginia called Grantville has been transplanted in time and space to Germany in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. The interactions between the modern residents of Grantville and the People in the surrounding countries form the basis of this intertwined series of novels and stories. So, Ivor, how did you get started writing In the Ring of Fire? What drew you to it?
3: Well, of course, our starting point was actually reading Erickson's books. And in the back of the 1632, there was a postscript of some sort that mentioned Baines Bar. I joined it... So monitored the conversations silently for a little while and then plunged in. And that was probably around 2007. And very shortly after that, I wrote my first article for the Full Gazette, which was Drillers and Doublets. And it was, as you could probably gather, about the question of oil exploration and development in the 1632 universe. Uh, And then I did another one on glass, and after that I started writing fiction as well.
2: So what are the challenges, if any, that come from playing in someone else's sandbox like that? Did you ever have a situation where you wanted your characters to do certain things, but they were constrained by the setting?
3: Oh yeah, it happens. The A good example of that would be with the first fiction I wrote for the universe, and that was a story called Federico and Ginger, which involved this um, Italian dancing master who came to Granville to be the dancing instructor for Princess Christina, the daughter of Gustavus Adolphus, and... When the novel 1633 ended, it gave the impression that Princess Christina was going to be in Granville for an extended period of time, and I wrote my story with that in mind. When Eric got around to writing 1634, The Baltic War, he decided that she would be in Magdeburg. So Federico became a commuter. (laughs) I had to rewrite the story so that he was on the road uh, quite a bit, but we managed to work it out and get things back in line. So that would be one example. And there is some action in um, Seas of Fortune in the first part uh, uh, where – I had to rewrite uh, a major portion of one of the stories so as not to interfere with the developing plans of Eric Flint and Chuck Gannon for what they are going to be doing in the Caribbean. But, you know, that's just part of being in a very, very large collaborative universe.
2: Okay, so for the stories in Sea of Fortune... Can you give us a little bit of background on what was going on in Japan at the time and then what the situation was in South America and the Caribbean as well?
3: Well we start with the latter first. Sure. Uh with regard to South America and the Caribbean, you had the Spanish in what we would now call Venezuela and uh also in Peru and you had the Portuguese in Brazil, uh, mostly on the coast. And there's this area in between the Orinoco River of Venezuela and the Amazon River of Brazil, which is called the Wild Coast. Not that the rest of it was all that civilized when you really come down to it, but it was an area in which Spain and Portugal were not yet particularly interested, and so they didn't do t- much to interfere with other European po- powers forming colonies there, unless those colonies decided to go and raid them, which they sometimes did. Uh, so that's um, stretching out, as uh you alluded to. Does have a colony on the coast of South America, and it is located on that wild coast, which is the area of the three Guianas on on the modern map of South America. Uh, with regard to Japan, Japan in the 16th century was in a state of civil war, and at the very beginning of the 1600s you had a unification of Japan under um, uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu and at this point for the benefit of any Japanese speakers in the audience I'm going to put out a complete disclaimer of getting any Japanese pronounced correctly (laughs) I read it I have not really worked with native speakers so I'm sure that I'm going to pronounce some things wrong, but he won a major battle in the year 1600, and um, he became a shogun in 1603. And the shoguns were essentially the warlords of Japan. They held the real power. The emperor had no political power at this time whatsoever, and... So that's one part of the background. The other part is during that 16th century was the period where the Christians made contact. And at various times, there were Spanish and Portuguese missionaries and traders and Dutch traders, um, and English for a period as well, uh, roaming around Japan. The Spanish and Portuguese were, at certain points, very successful in making converts. At its peak, there have been estimates of 300,000 Christians in Japan, uh, but it's important to realize that there were only maybe a 100 missionaries, so their knowledge of Christianity was maybe a little shaky, and... The Christians, unfortunately, got involved in politics, and there was an incident in which uh, the captain of a shipwrecked Spanish uh, ship um, uh, bragged to the Japanese that the Spanish Empire was very large, much larger than the area ruled by the shogun, and it was that large because our kings begin by sending missionaries into the lands they wish to conquer. As you can imagine, the Japanese found that a very interesting statement, and the reaction was perhaps not what the captain had intended. And there was a crackdown on Christianity, and Christianity is a illegal religion at the time that the Japanese stories open. And indeed, not only is it an uh, illegal uh, religion, but the crackdown on it is really, really ferocious in practice and not just in law. And the final piece of the picture is that uh, in the 16th century, the Japanese said, oh, you know, The Europeans have all these goodies. Trade with them is a great thing. Among other things, they brought firearms. But as the missionaries became perceived as a threat, they became quite a bit more ambivalent about contact with Europe, and more and more restrictions were were imposed. And we're right now at a stage when the Japanese story start, which is in sixteen thirty three, when there's starting there have been some restrictions placed but nowhere near like what came a couple of years later. And that's of course one of the things that is going to get changed by the impact of the Ring of Fire. So that pretty much is the picture and I hope that wasn't too much, but uh, that gives you the idea of what's roiling about in the uh, Japanese situation right now. That
2: sounds good. Uh, you say that the book consists of two braids. What do you mean by that, and how does writing a braid differ from writing, say, a traditional anthology or novel?
3: Okay, well, first of all, my two braids, part one, and part part one stretching out is dealing, as you say, with uh, uh, South America and the Caribbean. And part two is dealing, uh, Rising Sun is dealing with the Japanese. There is no connection between part one and part two other than, first, that they are set in the 1632 universe, and secondly, uh, there's... The conceit that led to the title, the title sixteen thirty two, Seas Plural of Fortune, referring to the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. But there are no character interactions in between the two parts. They're essentially two separate short novels put into one volume, or braided novels, I should say. So what I mean by the braid is they're short stories, but they're each braid are short stories that are connected. Uh, same location, same characters, uh, possibly certain thematic uh, correspondences, links of various kinds that vary depending on which stories we're talking about. And so that's what the braids are like. So far as what it's like to write these well when you write the advantage of writing a braid when you start is at first it's like writing a short story and if your natural writing pace is short story length rather than novel length then it it's easier to accomplish it in those parts where it gets tricky is in the links uh, so that they are not unconnected stories, and especially in the final story of The Braid, because the trouble is that that story has to have both a short story pacing And it also has to be the climax of the entire braid. There has to be some closure for the major characters in terms of the, the incidents you've been developing in the string of stories all along. And so that's the aspect in which it is perhaps a little harder than a traditional novel, where you only have one kind of pacing to worry about.
2: So it sounds like you have to hold several strands and try and keep them in your mind all at the same time
3: yeah pretty much or you end up but you know how the writing process can be sometimes important you get something down you get it right and then you start working with it and the like the last stories of um, both braids went through several rewrites there's also another factor which is the brave being able has the advantage that you don't have to keep to a strictly linear time. In theory, you can have one story overlap in time with another, and so on and so forth. But the catch is you can't do too much of that without driving the readers crazy. And the in the Japanese section. Um you'll see there are seven, uh, five stories there now, but when I sent the initial manuscript to Bain, uh, there were seven. And it's not that I've cut out a story, it's that a couple, I merged two pairs of stories into single stories, uh, so that I didn't have quite as much timeline-jumping as I would have otherwise.
2: Well, that that leads me into my next question, which was, how did Sea of Fortune become a book?
3: The answer there is different for the two parts. For stretching out, I started writing those stories initially as standalone stories. And at some point, um, Eric started hinting that stories that were part of the series might be a lot easier to develop into a potential into some kind of book than stories that had no connection with each other. So I started deliberately trying to make a series at that point. With regard to the Japanese stories, the The first story in there uh, was written uh, with a view to dealing with something of a pet peeve of Erics, which is people thinking that the uptimers are just going to recreate the modern world within a few years, maybe a decade or two. So I wanted to shake up the timeline a great deal, you know. Uh, humpy-dumpy was going to fall and you weren't going to put back together the old timeline again. And I'm deliberately speaking around what the big twist, the big change is at the, at the end of the first story of the Japanese series. But when people read it, they'll say, oh, that's what he's doing. And so... Um, that was the idea and originally Eric was planning to run it as one of the stories in the ring of fire three anthology. And then he decided that he'd like to take that story and another story in the stretching out series from me and a couple of stories from Chuck Gannon and a couple of stories for himself and have a anthology there. And Then he and Chuck decided they had enough New World material for a book on its own, and that's when uh, he started talking about taking uh, the Stretching Out and Rising Sun stories that I had written already and putting them into a volume of their own. So it it, (laughs) really... Didn't know where, you know, the the ball was going round and round, and I didn't quite know where it was going to drop for several years.
0: Yeah.
2: So without giving away too much, are you hoping to continue those plot threads that you've set in motion in Seas of Fortune?
3: Uh, There is a good chance of that. Uh, With regard to the stretching outside... The problem with writing in that area is that Eric and Chuck are going to be very active in the Caribbean, and I really, uh, can't write much in that area until I have a better idea of what they're going to do. With regard to Japan, I have a considerably freer hand. And I do have some ideas in mind for that. And Eric had been speaking at one point about my doing another Japanese story for Ring of Fire 4. But exactly how that will all gel out, that I don't know at this point.
2: So the I think the, the Eric and Chuck... Side is going to be Commander Cantrell on the West Indies. If I'm, I believe that's the next one coming out from them.
3: That's right, and I don't think that that would be the only one in the Caribbean either. Right. So, but that's the only one I have definitive information on.
2: Hmm. So a lot of your Grantville Gazette contributions are focused on the technologies, transportation modes, and sciences of the 17th century things like mining, glass making, railroads, other transportation, navigation, all these that are kind of the, what I would think of as the realistic underpinnings. So do you ever find yourself tempted to write a short story and take the easy way out and have a ship that runs on unobtainium?
3: Oh, no. Uh, as you can imagine by the How much nonfiction I write. One of the things I like about the universe is how much insistence there is on uh, realism uh, in the series. The obviously there's room for disagreement sometimes as to how quickly a particular technology would advance, but either. The information has to reasonably come through the ring of fire, be something that would be in the libraries of a small town or within the knowledge of the limited uh, population of professionals and hobbyists and the like that are in such a town uh, or something that given that. Base and with the limited infrastructure that you start with in the the 1600s, that it can be developed by the the much larger group of downtimers. Some of whom are, you know, very smart. <laughs> so uh, that is an attraction for the of the series for me and. I do wrestle very hard sometimes with trying to make things work, and I I think it's a discipline, really, that uh, if you can use the unoptanium, as you call it, then you make life, it, it encourages laziness on the part of the authors. And let's face it, we don't want to make it easy for the characters. We want them to have obstacles. So if they don't have something and they have to develop it or they think something will work and it turns out it won't work. Maybe the materials uh, aren't up to it and the like. That, that, that creates some dramatic opportunities that you miss out on when you try to hand wave your way through it. So... That's at least the way I look at it, and in terms of this series, uh, or in terms of this uh, novel in particular, you you will find that those things happen. Maps are misleading because they show features that existed in modern times that perhaps exist in the 1600s. the encyclopedias may tell you something about where a resource is and some of them get it wrong. The uh there this isn't one of the more high tech oriented of the novels in the sixteen thirty two universe, uh, because the Japanese have only very, very limited indirect contact with Granville, there is somewhat more of it on the stretching outside. But still, you have to think about things like a sailing ship takes so many days to get from place A to place B, and you can't just hand-wave that away. And that actually is very significant, for example, in the, um, the case of rubber, because uh, if you're trying to transplant rubber seeds, they don't stay viable for very long. Um, So, I hope that answers your question. It does.
2: Thank you. So, what facets of the Ring of Fire are you hoping to tackle next, and can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming projects?
3: One thing I have is a short story for the Gazette called Newcastle's Call. The, uh, Newcastle city in England, uh, suffered an extremely severe plague outbreak and, uh, during the 1630s and I'm going to be writing about how that changes as a result of the exposure to new ideas from, uh, Randall. But they are not in, you know, intimate contact with the uptimers, so some people will believe what the uptimers say and others won't, and some things will come through in a distorted voice, and there'll be some opportunities. As I was researching that, I had to, of course, study the play, which is why the the uh, last two articles I've written for the Grand Folk that have been on the subject of, first, how the plague was handled in Europe before the Ring of Fire, and secondly, what new information the uptimers might be imparting on that. So, that's one project. The I do have uh, an article on heat exchangers, possibly not the most fascinating of subjects, but it came out of having an argument with someone about steam-powered airships and how much the condensers for the the steam power plant would weigh, and of course that's a consideration for any kind of airship, and um, I have been doing a great deal of research on Ming China and I will leave it to your imagination as to where I might go with that.
2: I'll be looking forward to it. So how do you manage That's to... The... No, I was just saying I'm looking forward to reading that about uh, the Ming Dynasty. You've piqued my interest there.
3: the The Ming in the 1640s Suffered well. It really started earlier, but they had the dual problem of what were called bandits. But when you're talking about hundreds of thousands, I'm not sure the word bandits is quite appropriate. Um, of internal strife, and also the growing threat from the what were called the Jurchen barbarians, who, who renamed themselves the Manchu. Um, on the northern frontier, and those all came to a head in the 1640s, and the Ming dynasty fell. There were some remnants that were called the Southern Ming that lasted for some years longer, but ultimately we the we had the Manchu dynasty take over, which was the last of the imperial dynasties. So, as you can imagine, I have plans for how to accelerate all the trouble into the 1630s as a consequence of the Ring of Fire. But uh, just stay tuned on that.
2: Definitely, definitely. So is there anything else you wanted to cover? I think that's it. Just remind us about any upcoming convention appearances and or bookstore events that, that you've got coming up, and we'll mention those, and then we'll put you know, we'll put them on the website, too, if they're not already up.
3: Okay, well, I have Farpoint in um, February, and I believe I'm going to be the first 1632 author to ever appear there. They're in Timonium, Maryland, and that's... President's Day weekend. Mm -hmm. And then I have a little bit of a respite, and then I have RavenCon in April. That's in Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And then in May, we have MarCon, which is going to host the 1632 Minicon. So there'll be lots of 1632 authors there, including, of course, Eric and... In addition, uh, later in May, there is Balticon, which is uh, Memorial Day weekend. That really is as far as I've planned out con appearances so far.
2: Okay, great. I think we've got all of those on the website, but I'll just make sure they are. And for finding your... I'm sure
3: you don't have Balticon because I only had the formal invitation uh, a few days ago.
2: Okay, we will go ahead and add that then. So the book is 1636 Seas of Fortune by Ivor Cooper, who's been with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Ivor.
3: And thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: We have an excellent and thematic cut from Truth, Lies, and Make Believe. This is an album by Gray Reinhardt. Gray is the slush editor here at Bain. He's also a talented and much-in-demand filker at many East Coast science fiction conventions and just an all-around great guy. This cut and Gray's entire new album is available at Bandcamp, Amazon, and many other places including Gray's website, graymanwrites.com. That's G R A Y. Here's Gray Reinhardt with Steampunk Pirates.
4: Some hardy sail the high seas. And cowboys ride the plains. But I sail the skies with gold in my eyes and ride like thunder on the winds of change. Spread the canvas port and starboard, full sail while we build the steam. Hold steady with the wind now, sharpen up your eyes There's battle in the offing, thing and there's treasure in the skies Tonight the airship pirates are gonna prowl among the clouds With cannon at the ready on the lookout for a prize Taste the spray of grease and oil Hiss of steam assaults your ears Fit your goggles tight Keep your daggers bright Jolly Rogers flying past the turning gears Spread the canvas board and starboard full sail while we build the steam. Hold steady with the wind now, sharpen up your eyes. There's battle in the offing and there's treasure in the skies. Tonight the airship pirates are gonna prowl among the clouds with cannon at the ready on the lookout for a prize. Caraphale, galleon, and or bark If they won't let us board them, then we'll ride them to the dirt <laughs> Who among you knows what their cargo holds chest of liquor, chest of silver, diamonds, pearls of gold Fire up the boilers then and ready all the guns We're after fortune's hoard tonight There's glory to be won I'll forever climb the thermals Sails trimmed racing round the clouds Ride the winds of fate With the fortune that I've made Till my last pennies finally hold my eyelids down Spread the canvas port and starboard full sail while we build the steam hold steady with the wind now sharpen up your eyes there's battle in the offing thing and there's treasure in the skies tonight the airship pirates are gonna prowl among the clouds with cannon at the ready On the lookout for a bride
1: And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the frontier area known as the Verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant, a region allied with the Star Kingdom, on the border of the restive frontier of Solarian space. When Goldpeak receives word that the Sali assault on the Manticoran home system has been utterly destroyed, she decides to take action in her own sector. With the bulk of her fleet behind her, she sets out for the heart of the outermost Sali system, and Gold Peak and her fleet most definitely do not come in peace. Here is Part 45 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
0: August 1922, Post-Diaspora And best of all, if we do it right— The bastards won't even realize we're on to them until we hand them over for trial. Captain Cynthia Lecter, Royal Manticoran Navy Chapter 33 I suppose that's just about it, then. Michelle Hankey tipped back in her chair, rested her right ankle on her left knee, and clasped her hands behind her head unless anyone else has something they think we should be looking at. She looked around the officers gathered at the long table in her dining cabin, most of them sipping coffee or munching their chosen form of finger food, and quirked an eyebrow. It was an informal-looking group, which wasn't too surprising, considering the fact that their commanding admiral had chosen to hold it here, rather than in her briefing room, and to attend in her academy sweats and tree-cat slippers. None of the others were quite that informal, of course. Rank did have its privileges, which none of them were so rash as to usurp, however congenial their CO. But there was still an undeniably casual, comfortable feel to the meeting. It looks to me like you've covered all the points from the agenda, ma'am, Gervase Archer said, consulting his mini-comp. Then he smiled wryly. For that matter, you've uh, hit on at least a few additional points. Several people chuckled, and Michelle grinned unrepentantly. Organization was a good thing, and she was as organized as anyone, until she was certain she'd covered all the points she'd planned on covering. After that, free association was the order of the day, as far as she was concerned. In fact, she encouraged it as a way to expose points she hadn't thought about ahead of time. Obsessive organization is the sign of a mind not prepared to thrive upon chaos, she pointed out and the chuckles were louder. "'Actually, there is one thing it might be appropriate to bring up, ma'am,' Victoria Armstrong said after a moment. The flag captain sat at the opposite end of the table from Michelle, flanked by Commander Larson, her executive officer, and Commander Wilton Diego, her tactical officer. At the moment, Armstrong's green eyes were unwantedly serious, and Michelle frowned mentally. "'Go, Vicky,' she invited. Well, I've actually been thinking about this for a while, Armstrong continued with a slight shrug. The thing is that, as honored and pleased as I am to be your flag captain, I have to question whether or not a battle cruiser, even a Nike like Artemis, is the best place for you to keep your flag. We've got two and a half squadrons of modern ships of the wall now, and they've not only got better flag-deck accommodations— but they're a hell of a lot tougher, too. Trying to get rid of me, Vicky? Michelle asked quizzically, and Armstrong shook her head. No, ma'am, of course not. She smiled. I'm just pointing out that a super-dreadnought is more traditional for a fleet commander's flagship, when it's available, of course. You may have noticed that I've never been exactly trammelled by the bonds of tradition, Michelle said dryly. Then she straightened in her chair, leaned forward, and folded her hands on the table in front of her. "'I appreciate the sentiment, Vicky," she said in a considerably more serious tone. "'And I'll admit I considered, briefly, whether or not it would be a good idea to move to one of the SDPs when they became available. But I decided not to for several reasons. One is that for the immediately foreseeable future, I don't think the question of survivability really enters the equation.' Unless we screw up, the Sollies aren't going to be able to threaten us significantly. For that matter, even if they manage to get into range, a Nike like Artie is a hell of a lot better protected against anything but point-blank energy fire than almost anyone else's ships of the wall. There is a little something to be said for the superiority of a super-dreadnought's... What was it you called them? Flag-deck accommodations? Michelle shrugged but that's mainly a comfort factor and a matter of having more room to pack the admiral and her staff into. The actual command facilities aren't that much superior to what we've got right here aboard Arty, and our CIC's receiving the input from every sensor in the entire fleet. The decisive factor, though, is that I'm comfortable aboard your ship, Captain Armstrong. She smiled. You and your senior officers are an extension of my staff, and you and I have been thinking together long enough for me to be sure you understand the intent as well as the wording of any order I may give. And while I hesitate to mention it in front of all these awestruck junior officers—her smile became a grin as she glanced at the other officers seated around the table—there have been occasions, rare perhaps, but nonetheless real, upon which you have respectfully raised considerations which have tempered my own, perhaps overly enthusiastic notions. Frankly, I'd just as soon not have to break in another flag captain who's willing to do that. Her whimsical tone became rather more serious with the last sentence, and Armstrong looked down the length of the table at her for a second or two. Then the flag captain nodded, and Michelle nodded back. "'I wonder if someone else has been complaining "'about Vicky's relative lack of seniority,' she thought. "'Funny how people can piss and moan over something like that "'at a time like this. "'And it'd be like Vicky to offer me a way to make the move "'without looking like I'm conceding anything to the complainer "'or like a lack of confidence in her, for that matter.' "'She made a mental note to have Cynthia Lecter "'look into the matter quietly,' She didn't expect to discover anything like a serious problem, but it never hurt to be proactive about things like that. Shrinking violets, by and large, didn't make it to flag rank. Overall, that was a good thing, but ego involvement was one of the most pernicious producers of friction, and one with which Michelle had never sympathized. And I'm not about to discombobulate my command arrangements at a time like this, especially if it's just somebody with a nose bent out of shape because she's senior to Vicky and thinks she ought to be 10th Fleet's flag captain. She snorted mentally at the thought. In less than one T day, 10th Fleet would be dropping out of hyper in the Myers system, not a good time to be tinkering with its command structure. All right, people, she said out loud. Now that that particular pressing question has been dealt with, I think it's time all of us got some sleep. She smiled again, this time without any humor at all. After all, we're likely to be just a bit busy tomorrow. Oh, shit. What was that? CPO Sylvia Chu, chief of the watch in Myers Astro Control, looked up from the endless stream of memos and directives on her own display with a stab of irritation as she heard the soft, fervent mutter. Commodore Thurgood's upcoming exercise loomed large in Chu's thoughts at the moment, and she needed to get her paperwork at least under control—she was never going to get it finished, that was a given in the Navy—to clear the decks for it. As Lieutenant Bristow had pointed out to her only that morning, screwing up the exercise because they'd missed dotting some I or crossing some T would constitute a bad thing. And so would a last-minute censor snafu, which was why the comment from Petty Officer 2nd Class Alan Coker, who was currently manning the outer system surveillance platforms, had set off Chu's internal alarms. The outer platforms were even more urgently in need of upgrade and replacement than the inner platforms, and the last thing she needed with the exercise looming on the horizon was for one of her primary sensor nodes to report a malfunction. That would not look good on her next efficiency report, which was due in less than two T-months. There was no immediate response to her question, and she frowned as Coker leaned closer to his own console. Coker could be a royal pain in the ass, but although she would have gone far out of her way to avoid admitting it, Chu regarded him as one of the three best sensor techs assigned to the Meyer system. His defects, and the reason someone of his ability was still only a second-class petty officer, stemmed from a certain lack of patience with officers in general, coupled with what Chu thought of as the old frontier fleet hand syndrome. Coker had seen more incompetent officers with family connections than he could have counted come and go during his career, and he'd spent more than his fair share of time cleaning up after them. It gave him an edge of something entirely too much like insolence towards the commissioned nitwits who came his way, but his decades of service had also made him very good at his job, He was, quite literally, too valuable to be canned. Which was why his present expression sent another, sharper tremor of unease through Chu's professional instincts. Coker's hands moved across his console for several seconds, obviously double-checking and refining whatever had drawn his attention. Then he straightened and looked at Chu. "'We are so screwed,' he said flatly. "'I realize you have a reputation to maintain as a character.' she replied tartly. But unless you want to be ripped a new one, I'd appreciate a report one hell of a lot more detailed than we are so screwed. Sorry about that, Chief. His smile was a grimace, but there was also genuine apology in it. It's just... He gestured at his display. The outer platforms are calling it 28 Super dreadnoughts, Chief. He shook his head. And whoever they are... They sure as hell aren't ours. "'It's confirmed, Commodore,' Captain Thora McPherson said flatly. "'Definitely twenty-eight in the super-dreadnought range, judging from their impeller signatures. Not only that, but their Excel inbound is over five-hundred-and-thirty kps-squared.' A smile as grim as her tone flitted across her face. "'They haven't said anything to us yet, but given that number and that Excel,' There's not much question who they are. Commodore Thurgood nodded, not that he'd really needed his operations officer's last sentence. For that matter, he hadn't needed the acceleration rate. There was no way in hell anybody he wanted to see would be sending that many ships of the Wall to a miserable, back-of-beyond-system-like Myers, and that left only one candidate. Well, that's a pisser, Captain Hideyoshi Wayne, Thurgood's chief of staff, observed. You do have a way with words, don't you, Hideyoshi? Sorry, sir, Wayne grimaced. You didn't say anything I'm not thinking, Thurgood confessed with a sigh. He shook his head. I've warned Verrocchio and Hongbo something like this could happen, but I have to admit, I didn't really expect it, and I'd never have expected them to arrive in this kind of strength. He twitched his head in the direction of the master display. It was currently set to astrographic mode, showing the entire star system. The Geostar's 22-light-minute hyperlimit was represented by a green sphere, and a glowing rash of red icons was just about to cross into it, headed for the inner system. There were a lot of them. "'It does seem like using a sledgehammer to swat flies,' Howell Chavez, C.O. of SLNS Edgehill, Thurgood's battle cruiser flagship, agreed. Thurgood glanced at the comm display, which linked his flag bridge to Chavez's command deck, and the flag captain chuckled humorlessly. "I mean, I'm flattered and everything, sir, but it is a little excessive, don't you think?" "It's possible they think we've been reinforced," Wayne said, but Thurgood shook his head. Possible, but not too damned likely. Not way the hell and gone out here. Then why do you think they brought along so much heavy metal, sir? The chief of staff asked. Aside from the obvious, you mean? Thurgood smiled thinly. Your guess is as good as mine, Howell. Actually, sir, I might have an idea. Captain Merriman said quietly, and all eyes turned to the petite, fine-boned intelligence officer. It was an open secret, at least among Thurgood's staff officers, that he and Sadako Merriman were lovers. That was too common in the Solarian League Navy to merit comment, except that, in this case, Merriman had become Thurgood's intelligence specialist on the basis of raw ability well before she'd become his lover. "'Fire away, Sadako,' he invited now. "'We've got better than three hours before they get here, after all.' It's just a theory, of course, sir, Merriman said. But I've been thinking a lot about Goldpeak's character ever since Admiral Byng ran into her in New Tuscany. She's perfectly willing to kill anybody she has to. What happened in Spindle's proof enough of that, too, I suppose. But I think she'd prefer not to kill anyone she doesn't have to as well. In fact, Spindle's part of the reason I think that. She could have gone right on shooting without allowing Admiral O'Cleary to surrender, just like she could have taken out Admiral Bing's entire task force. She chose not to. She shrugged. And? Wayne prompted. And? I think she deliberately brought along enough firepower to make it obvious to anyone we wouldn't stand a chance against her. Merriman said. Her way of giving us an out, unless we're as pig-headed as being, you mean, Chavez said thoughtfully. I doubt she thinks the Commodore'd be pig-headed enough to get all our people killed for nothing anyway, sir, Wayne pointed out. We're Frontier Fleet, after all. That means we have working brains. One or two of the officers on Edge Hill's flag bridge actually chuckled at the comment, despite the situation, and even Thurgood's lips twitched in an almost smile. "'Probably not,' he said after a moment. "'But Sadako could have a point. "'With this kind of odds, it's a hell of a lot less likely some idiot, "'uniformed or civilian, is going to try to overrule any outbreak of sanity on my part. "'For that matter, I could be just as stupid as Bing or Crandall, for all she knows, "'in which case I'd need something pretty damned obvious to make the point.' It was the first time he'd allowed himself to attach that particular adjective to those two paragons of tactical and strategic genius in front of anyone else. Under the circumstances, however, he doubted it was going to have any detrimental impact on the career which was about to come to a screeching halt. Sadako might very well be right about Gold Peak's reasons for appearing in such strength, and no reasonable board of inquiry would expect him to oppose his single understrength battlecruiser squadron and its screen, to that kind of armada. Despite which, he was about to go down in history as the first Solarian League naval officer ever to surrender a Solarian-claimed star system to an enemy. Well, not to surrender one, precisely, perhaps, but what he was actually going to do would be even worse in some ways. Assuming we can get away with it in the first place which doesn't seem all that damned likely, really. He reminded himself, looking at those acceleration numbers again. At least the exercise schedule means we're starting with hot nodes, though, thank God. I suppose we'd better get Commissioner Verrocchio on the comm, he said out loud.
1: That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 45, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey for hosting a great interview. To Christopher Cefani and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a triple salvo of thundering thanks and praise from every ship of the line that sails the seven seas and flies the Bain colors, which is a lot more than you might think, for Ivor p Cooper, author of sixteen thirty six seas of fortune, please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.